0: your life thinking about your next vacation, you know, uh, and then you're locked down due to a vaguely understood virus coming out of China. One day you walk into the office on a Monday thinking about how you're going to navigate the corporate structure you're in and then you're clearing your desk out on a Friday. One day you think you're completely healthy. You go in for a normal scan and they discover cancer. There are seasons in our lives where we are just plugging along as if everything is normal, or we're expecting an incredibly fruitful or joyful season, and then something derails it in some way, and we're never the same afterwards. Many of us have had those happen multiple times in our lives, whether through a tragic loss, or a loss of health, or a a trauma that we've experienced. But there's also subtler versions of this, ways that shift our thinking, ways that shift our expectations. And one of those for me that I've never really talked to you all about too much was my time in seminary. I thought I was going to have a wonderful time in seminary. As some of you know, I'm kind of a nerd. So I thought, ah, a season where I have a scholarship to go and read and think about our Lord and prepare for ministry. This is gonna be wonderful. And there were aspects of it that were wonderful. I learned a few languages along the way. I did have more time to read than I'm assuming I will ever have again. Hopefully, maybe one day when I retire, if that ever happens. But I got so much time to read and be surrounded by wonderful people. I, to this day, have wonderful friends that I keep in touch with through my time in seminary. But I will say that when I look back on those years, it's always punctuated by grief. Because about one to two years out of seminary, so many of my friends that I thought were going to be walking alongside me in ministry for the rest of our lives had walked away from the call of ministry, had walked away from the church, and had walked away from our Lord. And, you know, I I noticed a pretty typical pattern a pattern that's almost formulaic. Um, In fact, I talked to a number of pastors about the sermon I'll be preaching today because it's a rather personal sermon for me. And they said, you need to preach it because it's what we see, rinse and repeat on a continual basis. Here's what happened to my friends. Many of them were in ministry because there was something about the church they were frustrated by. Something that had happened in the church that let them down or harmed them. So they wanted to go fix it. So they wanted to be in ministry. Well, that's probably that's a very bad reason to go be in ministry, by the way. Um, but then what happened was they began to focus their energy and their attention on the thing about the church that stirred up resentment in their heart. And then that resentment led to shame of the church for a way that they had felt wronged or let down personally, or how the church had let the community down or the world down. And then it was interesting, that uh, concern that they had became a fixation, a focus on what was wrong with the church. And that focus on how God's people have let them down and let the world down led to an ever-increasing shame to be associated with other Christians, a shame to be associated with the church, and over time, a to be associated with Jesus Christ. How many of us have experienced this in our own lives? People that we loved, who pointed out a true flaw in the church, but became focused and fixated on it. And that spiraled into resentment and shame. And many of us label that deconstruction. But if you actually do a reverse engineering of what actually happened, if you remember the events, it was out of control shame to be associated with God and his people. Shame-filled resentment sadly marks the deconstructing millennial like a cancer, and many of us walk with those wounds of people that we love dearly and care for dearly who have grown distant and dissociated from us and our Lord. Today what I want to do is I want to look at 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 18, where Paul is encouraging Timothy to not be ashamed of being associated with Jesus and being associated with him, a prisoner. This notion that shame drives so many out of the church is not a new reality. It's been going on since the very beginning. And how does he call us to respond to it? He calls us to respond to it by being focused on what we are called to truly be focused on. Not the failings of the church, but the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the final thing I want to look at is the hope that we won't be left alone. This I've actually spoken to some of you. I spoke to a young woman about this over the summer. Uh, she said, all of my friends that were in my Bible study have left the faith. All of them. It's just me left. W- what am I supposed to do? And what we see in Paul's own testimony and what we see in Christ's proclamation to Peter is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and we will not be left alone. So, if you would turn with me to Second Timothy one, we'll begin in verses eight through twelve. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I am appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. The temptation to be ashamed, to be associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's people is not a new phenomenon. Let me repeat that. The temptation to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's people is not a new phenomenon. Often when we think about shame, what we think about is something inside of us that we don't want to come to light, right? Some shame that we carry of some sin that we harbor and we say, okay, I need to bring that shame to the Lord." But there's another type of shame. There's the shame of association. There's a sh- shame to say my name is associated with that person or that set of beliefs. And in fact, we actually see this as kind of the, the, uh, the difficulty that we have in our culture today, right? That's a way that we seek to shame others is by saying the people you're associated with are doing X, Y, and Z. And you say, well, I haven't done any of those things. Yeah, but you're associated with those people. And so you seek to inch yourself away from them and dissociate with them over time. Now, we don't know what was going on in Ephesus when Paul was writing this to Timothy, but he's particularly points out a shame of being associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ and Paul who's in prison. Now, that's interesting because in the ancient world, particularly in the Roman world, gods were understood as these competing forces. So if your city was fortified... And you have another, you know, country coming to get you, right? The Babylonians are coming. The thought is if you get defeated, that's proof that the gods of the Babylonians are stronger than your gods. And so it's not only a shame that you have been defeated, it's also a shame that your God was revealed as weaker. Now, this was used and levied against Christians from the very beginning. Why? Because the Romans said, well, if he's your God we put him on a cross. How on earth can you be associated with that guy? We literally killed him. Or what you have is the shame of being associated with other Christians. So Paul, who's in prison, this would be considered a shameful turn of events for someone. If you have God on your side, how'd you end up in prison? Or what you see is something like, you know, most of the Christians of the early church were of the lowest socioeconomic strata. So if you were well off or if if your god was real why is it that you guys are also poor and powerless. Actually you see this tactic being used in many muslim countries and when it's it's a muslim majority that controls all the pow- power structures to say how if you, Jesus is truly god why is it you guys have no power right? This method is still used today. Now in the United States in Littleton Colorado maybe it's just me but here's what I've experienced, is people become incredibly ashamed of being associated with God's people when God's people's flaws are continually spotlighted again and again. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be aware of the flaws of the church. We have to be aware of the flaws of the church. If, if, if you know, Our church has very strict child protection policies. Incredibly strict. Why? Because we're aware that predators exist. But you know, like, how we're trying to encourage you all to make this an incredibly inhospitable environment for predatory behavior? We make you all go through trainings that show that give you an awareness of what predatory behavior looks like. The best way that the church can guard against predatory behavior in the church is to be aware of patterns of behavior that reveal such practices. I'm not saying for an instant we shouldn't be aware of the failings of the church. I'm not saying for an instant we shouldn't confess the failings of the church. But what I'm seeing happen again and again is we become fixated on the failings of the church. We become focused on the failings of the church. I googled, I pulled this up, Christianity Today's top 20 articles of 2022. Would you guess how many are bad news about the church? 11. If that's not focused, I don't know what is. I recently unsubscribed from a journal that I used to love to read. Uh, Many of my favorite theologians write for it. Do you know why I unsubscribed to it? I got tired of reading yet another article about the dangers of Marxism and woke ideology invading the church. That's all they could talk about. Or let's be honest, what we see going on in CT is all they can talk about is the dangers of people that support Donald Trump. What we see on both sides of the spectrum is that marketing has invaded the life of discipleship and we become fixated on problems in the church, fixated on those who embarrass us in the church, and we become increasingly ashamed to be associated with them. And over time, I've seen this happen, family, again and again, and I don't see this with any joy. This sermon was a grief to write. Some of you who are older have sat down with me and said, Tim, why are you doing the things that you're doing? And I'm saying, because these are the wounds I carry. So many of my friends, have experienced a loss of their faith because of shame driving them out of the church. What we see is a tragedy and a grief that has been plaguing the church from the beginning. When we focus on the failings of the church, eventually shame creeps in and then we dissociate from God's people and eventually God himself. So how do we respond How are we as a church to respond to this? One, I will say, we are called to be aware of the failings of the church. Don't hear me say we should sweep them under the rug. We absolutely shouldn't. Some of you know I've been a part of a defrocking. I have defrocked one of my colleagues. I was on the the panel with the bishop. I've exercised spiritual discipline alongside the bishop in a way that was incredibly painful. I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware. We have to be aware. But what do we focus on? What do we teach our children to focus on? Paul shows us. We focus on the great gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look back with me at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life, to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed." For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day that has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What does Paul encourage him to look to? He encourages him in verse nine, to look to the one who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Family, if the church loses sight of this primary word that we are a people who have been saved, we are a people who could not liberate ourselves, who could not find our way out of this mire that we have been stuck in, who could not liberate ourselves from the slavery and bondage of sin, and yet God chose to save us. We are a people who do not stand with any capacity uh, to issue these wild critiques of the world. We are a people that were so helpless that we had needed salvation for ourselves. That's the heart of what we focus on. He goes on in verse nine to qualify this. It's not because of our works. Every world religion, every one of them says, here is the path that you must follow to be saved. And the Christian religion says, take a good long look at yourself. If God is true holiness, perfect holiness, there is no path for you to get there in your own works. There is no capacity for you to keep his law perfectly. If it is by definition perfect, there is no room for error. And if there's no room for error, we are all in a desperate place and absolutely incapable of working our way back to God. But why does he say this? What is always the setup for the punchline? It's not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. At the very heart of what we are called to focus on is the initiating love of God not grounded in something that he sees particularly good in you and particularly bad in him or her, but purely as a gift given because of his good purposes. Before you existed, before you had committed a right or a wrong, our God chose to adopt you. One of the great beautiful images is um, there's a member of my family who's adopted And her adoption was finalized before she was birthed. While she was still in the womb, there was an adoption for her. And before you ever existed, there was an adoption for you. You weren't born into a place of being forgotten. You weren't born into a place where you had to find a way to be beautiful enough or lovely enough to be adopted. You didn't have to wonder whether or not, uh, who's that character in Little Orphan Annie who adopts you? You didn't have to worry about whether or not he was coming or not. Our God proclaimed that he was going to adopt you before you were even born. And then Paul goes on, he says, it, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And not only that, but but this Holy Spirit guards us until the day that He has been that He is entrusted to us. What do we see? Paul is refocusing Timothy on this great gift God has given. Not only to call him into life, but preserve him in life. Not only to adopt him, but to carry him through the trials of his existence. And Timothy faced trials. And brothers and sisters, that is the word that we are called to focus on. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have words of social critique. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be active in our society and in our world. But unless we focus on this word that grounds us and forms us and generates an identity as adopted children within us, everything else will be for nothing. And so, one of my hopes for our church is I want our children so grounded in the gospel that they aren't tempted to be ashamed. Yes, the world is going to hurl insult after insult about who we are to them. They're going to lie about us and sometimes speak truly about us. But my prayer is that our children would be so grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ that they would be able to, yes, acknowledge the failings of the church, but remain focused on who they are in Jesus. Which brings me to this last word. Paul encourages Timothy that shame doesn't have the final word. Look at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygias and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. I'm, hope, I'm hoping I am getting that one right. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. What we see here is that the word of Onesiphorus, this guy, that's the, the church isn't going to fail. The church isn't going to fail. While I have grief that a lot of my friends walked away from the faith during my years in seminary, I have far more of my friends that are faithful ministers when we were equipped to serve God's people and sent out to do so. My prayer is that we would be a people that recognize the value of the church, the value of being with one another, the value of being focused on the gospel of our Lord together so that we hand on to our children a healthier church than we received. That they would be handed on a church that doesn't spark shame, but sparks great joy as they revel in the gospel of our Lord. Some of you know I was in the Netherlands this summer, and uh, I always had a picture of the Netherlands as this very comfortable, very secular place, because I'd only been to Amsterdam when I was like 19. And what did I remember? People trying to sell me drugs on the street, hard drugs and uh, prostitution, right? Like that's, you know, what Amsterdam's known for. So I thought, I am, this Netherlands is a terrible place. There's like no churches anywhere. The only church I saw had been turned into a, a scandalous looking nightclub. It has, it has places, it's terrible. And then I went this summer and across from my little Airbnb was a church that I stumbled into on a Sunday night and I saw my friend Hank. And Hank is a gentle giant. I mean, the guy could just crush my head like a grape. And most Dutchmen could, to be honest. I'm the size of an average Dutch woman, um, they're very tall people. Uh, and I saw Hank. And Hank is just the sweetest man. And he's translating the sermon to my friend uh, BJ from Nepal. And as I'm hearing him, what is being preached, it's just the gospel being brought into the city. So I didn't think there was a gospel witness. And later that night, Hank said, hey, come with me, Tim. I want to show you, because he's on the consistory, that's the elder board. I want to show you the youth room. And I went downstairs and I looked on a wall and there was a picture of the youth group. And I kid you not, it was probably 150, 200 kids. And I said, Hank, how many people go to this church? Because there's no parking lot but there's a bunch of bike racks. How many people go to this church? Like a thousand to Sunday, a thousand to Sunday. And then I started asking all of these Dutch people, okay, well, like do people go to your churches? Yeah. We're about 10% of people go to church, but they really go to church. They're faithful. They love the Lord. And what it reminded me of is while our culture might be leading to ever-increasing secularism, While there might be some who grieve our heart, have been pulled away from the church due to shame, the church will not only survive, it will thrive. Our prayer is that we would continue to plant gospel preaching churches, strengthen gospel preaching churches, and grow this church not only in breadth, but in depth as we serve our Lord and remain focused on the gospel. And that will drive out shame. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the one who takes our shame upon his his shoulders and nails it to a cross. Lord, would we know what to do with our shame? Lord, would it not drive us from one another? Would it not drive us into resentment and bitterness towards each other? But would it drive us to the cross? Lord, thank you that we are not a people who you see as shameful anymore. But we are a people who you have washed who you have raised, who you will preserve until the day that you return. To the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.